It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi there, and thanks for joining me for this special Democracy Sausage Extra. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome to our modest studio here at the Crawford School of Public Policy one of the greats of journalism authorship, Fintan O'Toole. Fintan O'Toole will be known to some and perhaps new to others, but he's a household name in Ireland and across the British Isles. He's a columnist, literary editor and dramatic critic for the Irish Times, and he's regularly appeared in the New York Review of Books and is the author, author of numerous books himself. Fintan O'Toole, welcome to Australia. How many books is it? <laughs> it sounds terrible. I'm actually not entirely sure. It's something, something like 20, but <laughs> something um, like I haven't 20. counted recently, so I'm not, not, not entirely sure. Well, it's a strange time that uh, – thank you for, for being here with us at uh, Democracy Sausage. It's a very strange time, of course, for the world and a strange time really to be abroad. Uh, you've been in the country for a few weeks now. You're shortly to return to Dublin. Um, but it must feel uh, very odd. I mean, it feels odd to all of us anyway at the moment, what's going on. We can see it happening in so many countries, but it must feel very strange to be away from home, to be contemplating going home and all of the uncertainty associated with that trip and all of the complexities associated with that. I suppose it's it's just that thing, isn't it, that all the stuff we just take for granted, you know, stuff that we don't think about, including, you know, the absurdity of flying from Dublin to Australia and back, you know, that we, mm. it sort of seems like a normal thing to do until it's not. You know? yes. And then yeah, I think what this crisis brings home to all of us is, is just travel, um, you know, social life, the, the way in which we interact. And I suppose uh, the way in which at least middle class people like me have become, you know, just so cosmopolitan and, you know, you move around. So I have two kids in their 30s and one of them lives in Denmark and one of them lives in Spain, you know. Mm -hmm. So you're not just thinking about, you know, here here I am in Australia and, and, you know, what's going on in Dublin. You're also thinking about what's going on in Copenhagen and what's going on in Seville where your family is. And I, I think a lot of people have that sort of experience, you know, where somebody you love or somebody you know is 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 literally up in the air somewhere and you're thinking about you know are they going to be able to get back and what happens if they don't get back in time and they're locked out and they have to self isolate and uh, you know it 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 i suppose it just reminds us how 
the period most of us have lived through is is a very unusual period in human history. You know, we've taken it for granted that this stuff is not normal, but of course, for most of human life, it has been normal. So. Yeah, let's just think about that for a moment. That that, uh, un- as you say, it's an unusual time in history. It's a time when. You just used that word cosmopolitan. It's a time when the cosmopolitans have risen, I suppose, where where people like you and I may be very familiar with many cities in the world at once, for example, that we've visited a number of times. Um, you know, it does raise the question how much of that will change as a result of this, whether it will, whether there will be permanent change, um, but also you know, hard questions really like do we perhaps travel too much, too easily? And, and, and has that uh, had uh, – have we just had a kind of a wake-up call about that? Yeah, it does feel like that, doesn't it? That, that you know, um, we – and I, I'd say – usually when journalists say we, they mean other people. But, you know, I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean we as in me, you know. Uh, I, I think – I mean I've already been feeling really sort of – stupid guilty about all this stuff but you know but if you got a book out and you probably asked you to a festival and you think oh my god I can go to the Sydney Opera House I'd love to go to Sydney Opera I'm going to go to Sydney Opera House you know yeah. um, it, of course it's unnecessary you know in, in sort of all sorts of fundamental ways it's also utterly wonderful and, and <laughs> makes you so happy to be alive in this in that period right up to now right yeah. so you kind of feel isn't it amazing? I can, I can, I can go and I can speak in Sydney Opera House, and um, I can go to Melbourne. I, I can, I can, you know, I'm, I was at the Jaipur Festival in India um, just just last month. You know, you think, oh, you know, I'm so happy to be um, to be still, and I'm in my early sixties, and you're still healthy enough, and you can do these things. And then suddenly, I, exactly as you say, you realize this is not normal behavior. You know, it, at least the, not historically. Anyway. Historically, it's yeah. it, and you know the only people who. Who 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 traveled like this? You know, were were a small elite of merchants and soldiers, and you know, there were very mm. very specific reasons why why they were doing it. And um, you know, I think our 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 sense of interconnectedness is a wonderful thing. You know, and and, and we shouldn't become cynical about it. Uh, and this does remind us of that in a very democratic way, which is you know the. The poor peasant in China is 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 very directly connected to you and me and all our lives and and we to them you know and, and we're we're responsible for each other. Uh, how do we keep that sort of nice sense of globalization? You know, which is that you know we 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 live maybe for the first time in human history in a period when people actually genuinely are very profoundly connected to each other in almost every part of the world, uh, but yet modify our behavior in such a way that we 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 realize that actually we've been experimenting with something. Uh, we've stumbled into it without really thinking about the consequences. Yeah, and that idea of globalization uh, is is itself now, you know, facing a real test, isn't it? Because yeah. when we, we we hear anyone who's reading about what's going on at the moment and seeing the historical comparisons made with uh, the so-called Spanish flu of, uh, yeah. of 1918, uh, where 50 million people or some number like that died. I mean, it was absolutely uh, astonishing how bad that was. But if you overlay that uh, on the situation now with the, uh, you know, just the extent of integration of global economies, the uh, the sheer number of people movements between these places, how utterly routine it is on a daily basis, um, it, it, it's really quite staggering. And uh, there was always, I suppose, there's been a lot of talk about this in the literature for some time about the possibility of a pandemic and the influence of all this travel and everything else. Uh, yet you wonder if it's been taken seriously. It's been talked about a lot, but perhaps not 
prepared for in the way that um, it might have been. I, I think that sounds absolutely right to me. You know, uh, um, and you're right because it, it's. I mean, conceptual. We know it, of course, we know it. You know, and 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 I suppose every scientist has been saying there will be another pandemic, and and, and yeah, we hear this stuff about superbugs. Yeah, that, you know, and it's going to be it's going to happen in a way that is is unprecedented in terms of speed, but of course not unprecedented in terms of when the patterns are exactly the same, really, aren't they? I mean, you know, every global pandemic, when they we know them going way, way, way back. You know, they always have to start somewhere else, and and, <laughs> and right. they come. You know, and. Uh, you know whether it's 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 marmots in the Himalayas being the vector for for the Black Death, you know, or uh, I was just rereading. It's funny these kind of books suddenly become uh, uh, worth reading again. Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, you know, which was published I think in in the very early 18th century and was looking back or pretending to be a document from about 50 years earlier. From, yeah, from so the last I, I saw parts. Marina Hyde had made reference. To uh, that she has, yeah. Right and I, I had actually I'd written a piece uh, for my own paper on Saturday, uh, which was also referring to it and using it. And, He's talking about trade, and he's talking about you know the the, the narrator there is um, a saddle maker, and he says you know all my trade is with the American colonies, and and he keeps going to work. He 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 says you know if I if I if I don't go to work, I might lose my customers in the Americas. Uh, but he's also talking about you know speculating on where the where the virus has come from, or whether we're not using virus, but where the where the 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 plague has come from, um, and he's talking about. You know, it's it's obviously come from the east somewhere, and then it turned up in Italy, and then it turned up in in Amsterdam, and now it's coming our way. You know, so so actually, this sort of consciousness of the fact that everything is is connected, and that uh, this includes that both the great things about trade, but also it carries with it literally this danger. Uh, it, it probably goes back a very long way. But I think what's new is just the sheer speed of it. Uh, you know, that 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 um, we our our assumption of Automatic connection with with China, you know, with with, with every part of the world. I mean, the, mm. uh, you, you know, you can just see these lights going on even as we speak. You know, oh, it's Colombia now. It's you know, Samoa. It's you, you know, there's almost nowhere is not uh, now um, home to the virus. I, th I think Antarctica is probably the only place on. on well, you on, mentioned on, lights on. going off. That made me think about uh, the difference difference between uh, South Korea and North Korea, you know, of course, you know, that famous yeah. global picture yeah. that showed that there's virtually no electrification there and so forth. You don't, we don't know much about what's happening um, north of the 38th parallel. Um, yeah. That's, and we don't hear much about Russia either, I, I was thinking earlier today. Yeah, you know, and and the, 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 how do you read that? Is it, is it a good thing in saying, well, actually, maybe there's, there, there is very little infection there, well, or is it a really bad is, thing, which is that there's lots of infection, but that there's no testing and that you've got governments that are not responsive to, hmm. to the basic needs of their citizens and who are either hiding information or are largely indifferent or are in denial about things. Uh, so It's the thing about authoritarians. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they pretend to be strongmen, but they they are so easily embarrassed. Absolutely, they, they, absolutely. They, they, they want to hide everything, don't yeah, they? You know, and and pathetic. I, I, but I, th I think it's an important point you raise, Mark, because you know there's a. I don't know if you're picking this up, but you feel you get it in kind of conversation. But we're saying, well, actually, you know, authoritarian countries are better at this sort of stuff than democracies. Um, and yes, they're better at sort of giving you orders and, and yeah. making sure you follow them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, and the surveillance technology that the Chinese have implemented. It's been very effective, but also should make us be be pretty concerned. But actually, w w where democracy still wins is 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 uh, the possibility of open information, you know, and 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 of some sort of independent expertise being given a voice. You know, I, I think the yes, absolutely. I mean, if I was in an authoritarian regime, if I was in Russia, I would just 
you just you wouldn't you know if you if you see a, a scientist on TV saying you know this is the case, you have no way of knowing whether that's independent or not. And, and of course, you know we're rightly skeptical, and you and I worked in journalism for a long time, and we encourage skepticism. But Indeed. skepticism is not cynicism. You know, we, we still in democracies have the possibility of maintaining some sense that we actually there are some people we can trust and information we can trust. It's not we know we're not stupid. We know it's not going to be perfect, but we 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 still maybe have the capacity to think well these people are doing their best. Whether they're right or wrong, what they're doing is independent-minded and in in the public interest as far as they can determine what that might be. And I don't I, – I, that's where I still think I wouldn't like to live under an authoritarian regime even in this crisis because you simply wouldn't have any idea as to whether what they're telling you is true or not. Couldn't agree more. And of course, you know, one of the things that people are going to be doing a lot of if they're, uh, if they're forced into home isolation is, is looking at, um, you know, the uh, subscription television uh, uh, suppliers, people like Netflix. And that reminds yeah. one that a lot of people have been watching Chernobyl. Yes. Over recent times. Yes. And uh, we, there, there's a perfect example of official information being used to the detriment of people because they didn't want to be embarrassed about it, about what had happened. And, you know, millions of people are put at risk and, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die as a result. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a magnificent series, isn't it? If anybody hasn't seen it, it's it's it's, it's, it's absolutely superb chilling. But, uh, yeah. and really chilling. And, and, and also, it's a revelation because you realize that it was actually much worse than we thought it was. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but, but exactly as you say, the the instinct of of authoritarian regimes is 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 always to say we're in charge here mm. um but also they they they, they tend to be tied up with this nationalism as well yeah. uh, you know which is that um, we're we're the best country in the world this stuff couldn't be happening here you know it couldn't be our fault uh, well, and there's been a bit of that coming from one Donald Trump hasn't there you know, uh, exactly. we're handling this handling this perfectly uh, we have the best people we you know we have the best experts uh, you know we're completely on top of this Another point, there was a suggestion that some of this was, you know, part of a plot or a hoax or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, yes, really very worrying. The foreign virus, as, 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 yeah. as you know, that it's obviously it's a foreign virus which is attacking America. You know, it's not, nothing, yeah. you know, it's a it, – the nationalist narrative is, is, is being imposed on us. I, I mean, I, I don't want to be – um, gloomy about it, but I, I I would be very worried if I was in the United States. I, I actually think the U.S. Is, is is possibly the place, other than very poor countries with no health systems. But you know, in the developed world, I think it's the place I would least like to be now because you have thirty five million people who have no 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 thirty five million workers who have no sick leave. As you mm. know, you have health systems which are you know not designed for for uh, for any kind of equality of access you have 11 million undocumented people who are afraid to go to the doctor uh, and you have Trump and you have all that kind of you know and you just have that uh, completely kind of dysfunctional system really it's all yep. disaggregated uh, it, there are um, yep. you know limited uh, scope that the the federal government has in in terms of uh, ensuring all of this you've got as you say just the the failure of of uh, uh, health insurance to be anything like universal like we have in yeah. this country. Uh, it's a, a really very kind of vulnerable situation and a certain amount of official denial deep into this crisis has not helped. I, I, and it's been very deep, as you, you know, as you say, it's, 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 you know, starting with the hoax stuff. And yeah. I remember, I mean, Trump has a record of saying, um, you know, uh, I, he's an anti-vaxxer, basically, you know, mm. these vaccines are very dangerous, you know. And the, so this is the messaging that he's been putting out to his followers, you know, and, and the sort of nexus that he's in is very anti-vaxxer sort of thing. You well, know, he so might you've got know, all that apparently stuff. it turns you orange. He's, he's got <laughs> well, some personal experience <laughs> what happens. Uh, but, you know, it, the, the, it, 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 I suppose it's, it's, 
it's what this thing is showing us, isn't it? That it's 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 shining a very brutal light on political cultures and political systems. Indeed. And and I I don't know how you think about it. But it, it it seems to me this is the end of the era of political risk that we've been in really since the since the the, the bank great banking crisis. Uh, you know where public trust in government collapse, public trust trust in experts collapse. Not for un, you know for 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 bad reasons because. A lot of the experts were telling us that you know everything was perfectly safe in the financial world. So it, it seems to me we've almost been. You could think about the 21st century so far in terms of three waves of risk. You know, there's the financial one, yeah, uh, which then people respond to with this political risk, this willingness to take political risks to say, well, they're all liars, they're all buffoons. There's no experts, there's no information really. It's all made up. So I'm just going to entertain myself by you know I'm going to vote for Trump or I'm going to vote for Brexit or you know yeah. I, all this sort of stuff, and. I, I I think that era has just finished, right? So we're into an era of existential risk, you know. So so, and I think that will do things to people's expectations of governments and expectations of their politicians. Would you elect Donald Trump right now? You know, if you were if you're having an election tomorrow to say who who would you think would be best to deal with this crisis? Would you elect a Boris Johnson? You know, would you elect these figures who are very entertaining and 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 people um, you know find them amusing? Um, but in a crisis like this, you know, is, is this what you want? I, I suspect that era has just finished. Well, that's a very interesting point. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll take up that point about the changes that are that are sort of wrought to political systems and, and particularly in Ireland and, and, and in other places. So we'll just take a quick break and back in a moment. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I'm talking with uh, Fintan O'Toole. And let's go to that question you were raising just before the break about the changes that uh, might be wrought by this uh, this crisis that the world faces at the moment. And indeed, I suppose, uh, by a, a number of changes that uh, sort of uh, have come along even before that. I'm thinking about in your country, uh, it, this is true of many countries, but in your country over the last five years, there's been a lot of kind of news, really, a lot of, lot of action going on. Uh, you've, had, um, you've had the, the, the marriage equality referendum. Yeah. You've had elections. You've had uh, the, the, you know, the whole Brexit thing that has just sort of consumed news right mm. around the British Isles and in the Republic as well to a large extent in terms of the implications for it. And you've had an election in February which is still not really resolved in terms of uh, the result, notwithstanding that, you know, the, the, the votes were counted quickly, but what did it all mean? It's, yeah. it's, how, is, how is the onset of this corona 
uh, crisis, if we can put it like that. How is that uh, affecting the formation of a government in, in Ireland? Yeah, so as you say, we, we had this election and it, it produced a kind of three-way tie, roughly speaking. There are now kind of three big parties, um, two of whom are the sort of old traditional centre-right parties. Ireland's kind of strange. We had a civil war nearly 100 years ago and and nobody can quite remember what the differences between the two parties are and supposed is, to be. This is Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Yeah. And they've essentially alternated power between them for the whole history of the state, right? so, so over roughly a century. Um, but the public is fed up with that. I, I mean, you mentioned that you're quite right. So, you know, that we've had the same-sex marriage referendum. We've had the abortion referendum. It's a very rapidly changing mm. society. It's a young society. It's a very cosmopolitan, very open kind of society. And large parts of the population are saying, I just, that, that sort of political choice between two identical center-right parties is not one that I recognize anymore or want. Uh, and they picked up the biggest hammer they could find to smash it, which is Sinn Féin, which, of course, is the party that used to be a kind of pariah party, really. It was it was the political wing of the Irish Republican Army, one of the most successful and ruthless terrorist organizations that uh, that, that the modern world has seen, uh, which, I mean, laid down its arms in, in, in 1998. And so there's a long period of purda, really, between then. But it still has something of that background. And still has not been held fully to account for that, of course. It, it, it hasn't. And, you know, um, I'm, I'm of a generation where I remember this stuff, you know, and, and I find it very hard to just sort of say, well, that's okay. You know, as you say, nobody's been held to account. I mean, we haven't had a truth and reconciliation kind of process, for example. No. We haven't really had families being able to, you know, to get some kind of truth as to what happened to their loved ones. Not not just by the IRA. I mean, there were loyalist paramilitaries who, 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 who committed appalling atrocities. The British state was responsible for a lot of atrocities. But the biggest killer was the IRA. I mean, you know, just in terms of numbers, they killed most people. And most people they killed were innocent civilians, putting bombs in pubs or whatever else. Uh, so for my generation, I'm 62. I, you know, that's kind of seared in your in your brain. You know, I, I just can't forgive and forget that sort of stuff. However, my kids who are in their early 30s, for example, you know, they've only ever known Sinn Féin as the peace party, you know, the party yeah. that was kind of involved in the peace process and, and was, you know, disarming. And, you know, so they, 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 they tend not to see it in the same light. And one of the big uh, factors is that um, people may remember Jerry Adams, who was the Sinn Féin leader for forever and ever, um, old, old, well, he always said he was never in the IRA. Um, I don't think even when he looks in the mirror, the other part of the mirror believes him. You know, it's like <laughs> uh, he, he, well, he was a big IRA figure, of course. Um, uh, and he he was I mean, a very skillful politician, and you know, it's a real achievement actually to get a terrorist organization to lay down its arms. You know, whatever you think about it, it's just as a piece of political. Uh, as judgment and management, it's, it's do, amazing yeah. to do. Uh, but Adams, Adams was sort of had all that baggage. So this was the first election in the South, in the Republic, where Sinn Féin was fighting an election without Gerry Adams. And they have a new leader who's, who's female, Mary Lou MacDonald, who's very articulate. She's a middle-class Dublin woman. You know, she's ne never in the IRA. There's none of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of the factor, I think. Uh, you know, so, so what happened really is that a lot of the younger uh, voters in particular turned to Sinn Féin to sort of break the old system. I think I read that there was uh, between 18 and 24-year-olds, it was 32% voted for Sinn Féin, which is yeah. sort of quite significant. And Sinn Féin ended up being the party with the highest number of first preference votes in the whole election. That's which, right. You know, only That's fractionally right. Yeah. more than I think yeah. it was uh, yeah. uh, one of those two other parties. But um, yeah, That's really right. quite a remarkable change. Yeah. It is. And it's it's broken It's broken a, a whole political system. So it's not just this party or that party. It's broken this kind of two-party system. And this is why actually there's been, you know, it's been difficult to form a government because 
the only government that so the the two old centre right parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, they both say we're not going to government with Sinn Féin. We still don't trust them. They're not fit for government. And, and that's what they promised prior to the and election. That's what they promised they prior to the election. There are kind of ironies around this because they they were also insisting that Sinn Féin be in government in Northern Ireland. You know, yeah. so there's a kind of weird double standard, I suppose, uh, around it. But 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 they're maintaining this this sort of um, cordon sanitaire around Sinn Féin, saying we're not dealing with them. And the numbers then just mean that the only other government you can have is these these two centre right parties to coalesce together, probably with the Green Party uh, to to make up the numbers. Um, Which also uh, again did very consistent well. with your point about uh, youth voting in this election. I mean, they did do very well. I think they, they picked did. up about four and a half percent of the vote. Yeah, they a- did. that is an increase. An increase, yeah, about yeah, 10% yeah, of yeah, the vote. yeah. So you know, they're they've got ten out of the, the one hundred and sixty seats, which is in this kind of fragmented situation gives them a lot of power. Um, the Green Party last week proposed, and I think quite rightly, in my own opinion, uh, that there just be a national government formed. You know, there's a there's a crisis going on. Let's just, uh, you know, all the major parties get into government together for an unspecified period, just to you know have the authority of a government. Because w- what we've got at the moment is a sort of caretaker government. Um, yes. Well, your colleague uh, Pat Lay is that his, yeah. his name? He he's uh, made the point that uh, th- they made this call, but no one else has really joined on. No. Which is because I think the conclusion he was drawing was because the situation is so uncertain as a result of this Corona crisis that you know, being in charge is not a particularly attractive idea for some of the other parties. I think people will get very angry with that very quickly. You know, I, I mean, I think in a crisis, people do expect a government. And, they and, need, and, they need know, their representative to stand uh, up. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and say, look, this is, this is uh, you're telling us and we believe you, this is unprecedented. And this is, you know, an enormous crisis that could last for the rest of the year, if we're lucky, you know, and, yeah. and, and um, we, we've just had an election. We, we, we there's enough, you know, there's plenty of, Options there for for government formation, uh, so I I would suspect we we may see government formation pr- pretty quickly. I think uh, yeah, I think that public pressure is going to going to mount. In in terms of those uh, the sort of changes that it might bring about long term, again uh, quoting uh, Pat Lay, uh, he's listed five things. He says uh, it, the first one is a recession beginning in the hospitality mm. sector. I don't think that's a particularly controversial prediction. No. It seems to be already underway. He says destruction of the old party system, uh, which, uh, as you say, the election did yeah. uh, sort of start that process anyway, but it is likely to um, you know, change things so dramatically. He thinks a post-crisis demand for a better health system. Now, I don't yeah. think this is going to be unique to Ireland either. I think that you know that, that uh, health systems all over the world are being exposed for not having this so-called surge capacity and for yeah. essentially being kind of into just-in-time inventories and, yeah. and, and, and really just kind of – enough to survive in normal times but not particularly well suited to any sort of uh, sudden pickup in demand or crisis. Um, he says, interestingly, and I think this is the one that really fascinates me, he thinks a post-crisis demand for a bigger state. Now, that I think is sort of uh, saying that, you know, putting it another way, that we might be witnessing a shock that brings about the kind of official end of the neoliberal period, you yeah. know, the small government, yeah. uh, get government out of your lives, privatisation of everything, yeah. everything running sort of lean and on market principles, that people are going to want their governments to Absolutely. be bigger, more enveloping, more capable of uh, of protecting their citizens. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and finally, he says that it, 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 it will bring about this simplified formation of government, the, the process I guess you were just talking about, that it, it's going to force representatives to, to put away their differences in their national interest. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with pretty much all that, I think. And, and I, 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 mean, I think in a way the most interesting point is, is the big one about, about 
you know, about the nature of the state. Yeah. Um, if you go back to, uh, you know, the high point of the neoliberal um, tide, you know, coming in from 1979, 1980, Thatcher, Reagan, I mean, it's probably Reagan's statements, if you remember, uh, where, where he said that, 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 you know, they made the joke about the 10 most terrifying words in the English language, I am from the government and I'm here to help. Yes. And that summed up brilliantly. And of course, Reagan was, you know, brilliant at, at the, you know, putting a kind of folksy gloss on this actually right-wing anarchic um, hatred of government. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, now, I'm from the government and I'm here to help is exactly what, you know, citizens of, of all systems and all countries and all cultures at the moment need. You know, you realize that actually you need big government and, and you need it to be able to be responsive and you need it to have capacity uh, and you need it uh, to have a sense of, of of equality has to be at the center of this. You know, and I, I think this is really going to challenge that whole idea that inequality is good and natural because if you stand back from this, uh, what's been the great driver of progressive change over the last 200 years? It's actually been infection. You know, the, the, the biggest single thing that, that makes rich people think I can't insulate myself from the poor. I'd love to, but I can't do it. Is you know, it's the what historians call the great sanitary awakening of the 19th century. You know, clean water, plumbing systems, sanitation systems. That then leads into when you, you know scientific capacity comes into mass immunization, then national health services. You know, th- these are the things which are kind of driven progressive change, and. Perhaps looking back, there's a sort of weird coincidence between the rise of neoliberalism and this period of complacency we've been in where the mass immunization starts to work. You know, yeah. And actually, in yes. most Western societies, you don't have all of these diseases. I, I was just thinking about this. I'm 62. My grandfather died of tuberculosis at the age of 32. Uh, my, I'm my, glad that you, rem- you you know you remember that, or at least you remember that piece of your family history, because yeah. I noticed Donald Trump was surprised that people could die of the flu, and his own grandfather uh, had died. Uh, died of the, of the flu. flu, yeah. Uh, uh, and my my mother's young sister died at three from diphtheria, which was you know, and my my brother, my young my brother died at uh, three months old, you know, from from a gastric infection that was in the hospital or something, you know, uh, and we, we took that, I don't mean we took for granted in the sense that we thought it was okay. It was absolutely terrible. It was shocking and a, mm. had appalling effects on people's lives. But, I, you know, I grew up, I'm not that old, but I grew up in a world that was a world of airborne infection, you know, and, yes. and, and therefore society had to be organized around that. I mean, I remember the, getting on the bus and there used to be a sign saying, please do not expectorate. <laughs> and I, I, I was just thinking about this. I, and, uh, I, and I don't remember a time when I didn't know what expectorate meant. <laughs> you know, you knew it meant spit. But but even as a child, you knew, because, you know, that was the world you, you grew up in. There were there had been a polio epidemic, for example, in, in Ireland in the late 1950s. So, you know, I was in school. There were kids in calipers, for example, you know, with their legs, which had been paralyzed by polio, which is a, was a virus. So we, we lived in a world of infection and, and that was terrible. But the – someone said there was an upside to it. But what it did mean was that there was a very profound sense that disease was, was public. And what we've done, if you, if you think about the kind of coincidence of the neoliberal era with what we've done with health, we've privatized health both in terms of structures very often privatizing systems, but also, you know, health is your responsibility. It's about your diet. It's about your exercise. And I'm not saying those things are wrong. Of course, they're not wrong because not all disease is, is communicable. I mean, heart disease mm-hmm. and cancer and all the rest of it. But, but the sense of public health, which has been such a driver of progressive, social democratic, 
policies or liberal policies in 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 in, in the American sense uh, over the last two hundred years has been lost. And we're suddenly regaining it. I mean, health has just become public health again. Uh, and yes. I think that has very profound implications for the way in which we're going to think about governments, uh, the way we're going to think about the state and what our expectations of it are and how we organize societies. Yes, I think it's very, very interesting uh, development. And I, I agree. There's, uh, uh, the, the force of change here is uh, you can sort of feel it around you and uh, it's going to be – Fascinating to see what uh, respective countries can do with the resources that they have now, and what yeah. they are going to need to do, and what are they going to, be, you know, what will be the long-term implications of that, and indeed expectations, as distinct from expectorations, yes. uh, <laughs> arising from that. Um, in, in the small amount of time we've got left, let's just go also to um, that issue you mentioned at one stage a minute ago, Brexit. Mm. Uh, obviously, Brexit has occurred in the sense that it's been supported. Uh, Boris Johnson got elected. Officially, Britain has left Europe, or at least it's yeah. begun that process. That's had very significant implications for Ireland uh, and indeed been a, a factor in, in, in politics on both sides of the of the border, uh, where is it at at the moment? Because I think Australians are understandably quite confused about this. You know what what, what it actually means. How, how you yeah. can actually have a border in the in the in the, in the uh, Irish Sea and. Yeah. Yeah. Is it going to work? Well, they're understandably confused, yeah, because it's 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 an extraordinary development. I mean, it's very hard to think of a parallel. You know, I was supposed to be giving a, a lecture about the talk, but that's quite rightly cancelled because of the virus. But you know, it's, it, I can't think of a parallel where where a, a functioning modern state has effectively cut off part of its own territory and yeah. said. So, so this or, or came, even if I can take it yeah. back, a first principle before that, even I can't think of a, a case where a modern functioning state with ambitions in the world has made it harder to trade, to trade with well, yes, its so, nearest and biggest partner. I mean, this is the big this is the big thing. And by the way, this is already playing out uh, psychologically because remember, uh, the, the UK is doing one policy for, for coronavirus and, and everybody else in Europe is doing a different one. Yes. And Ireland's right on the front line of this, right? So, so yeah. uh, you know, viruses don't respect uh, borders on islands. And, you know, so Northern Ireland has the British herd immunity uh, idea, you know, which I think we, we don't have time to talk about. It's a very dubious kind of idea. And, and Ireland is following kind of European policy, which is very different. So you're already seeing this division playing out. But economically, where this is leading is is towards – so essentially this happens because when they did Brexit, they didn't think about Ireland, of course, at all. You know, and, and there's a long history of them not, not thinking not about thinking Ireland. About uh, and the peace process, which is one of the great achievements of British diplomacy, apart from anything else, and Irish diplomacy and American diplomacy. And you know, it's a real achievement. It really uh, – it's not perfect, but it worked. You know, it stopped an obscene 30-year conflict. Yes. And it was working. And one of the reasons it was working is that because you were in the European Union, not only was the sort of political side of the border, so you took down the watchtowers and the police and the helicopters and all the stuff that was there, that's all gone. But then you realize, oh, we're in the European single market, so you don't need customs posts, you don't need anything. So it, simply, if I travel from Dublin to Belfast now, right, I, I, I forget where the border was. You know, I, yes. I, I'm vaguely aware of the, the landscape of it, but where exactly was it? You just, you're not aware of it at all. You just move back and forward, and this has been happening ordinary life going on and and the the, the net nexus of connections has been thickening and deepening and so when they did the brexit you know we and I were saying you cannot do this we're not we're not letting you do this. you cannot impose a hard border customs border back on our islands you're just not doing it you know mm -hmm. and 
Ireland, you know, I, I'm usually very critical of the Irish government, you know, but but they did a really good job of getting the European Union to say this is European Union policy. This is not an Irish question. This is a European Union question. It it's, did come across uh, quite a lot uh, uh, from Brussels. You heard yeah. this reference: we will not abandon the Irish. We're just not doing this, and yeah. you're not, you know, whatever happens in the withdrawal agreement, you're not allowed to do mm-hmm. this. And therefore, the only other thing you could do was, uh, well, either have all of the UK remain effectively aligned to the European Union, which makes Brexit kind of pointless. Mm. Uh, this was the one good argument that people like Boris Johnson had, where you say, well, it's not worth doing if that's what it looks like. Well, yeah. it's fair enough. But then the only other thing you can do is really cut off Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK and say, well, actually, the border as such is going to be in the Irish Sea. So you're going to have to have customs declarations going from Scotland, for example, if you know you put something on a truck going into Northern Ireland, it's going to have, have customs declarations and to some extent vice versa. Within the same country. Within the same country. <laughs> and this has never been tried before and this is, go back to your question, is how's it going to work? Well, nobody knows. And of course, it, this is complicated by the fact that, that Johnson and the people, a lot of people around him have a habit of just denying what they've done. So they do something and they say, no, we didn't do that. <laughs> it's Bart Simpson stuff. It didn't happen. No, no, there's not going to be any checks. So so we keep seeing government ministers in Britain saying, oh, no, there'll be absolutely, there'll be no checks whatsoever. I mean, they've signed the, mm. an international law, you know, the withdrawal agreement saying this is what this is what's happening. And when you press them and say, yeah, well, there'll be some checks maybe, and you know, maybe. So just at the practical level of trying to figure out, well, how is this going to work? Because if you're the European Union, I mean, say you get the famous American chlorinated chicken coming into, into Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's no checks, all you've got to do is put it on a truck to Belfast, send it you know, 50 miles down the road to an Irish port, and then there's no checks, of course, between Ireland and France, for example. So you have your chlorinated chicken in France, right? So, so it's a serious issue for the European Union. They're going to love that. I mean, they're, not, you know, they, they're going to insist that there are real, real checks, right? And, and reasonably enough. Uh, but how this is going to be done, what the mechanisms are, and what it's going to mean. But the one thing we do know it means is, is it means divergence over time, right? So, so certainly the version of Brexit that Johnson wants is is a very hard one. You know, it's a lot of divergence, divergence from current European Union standards. Northern Ireland remains aligned to the European Union. So as the European Union changes uh, its standards, Northern Ireland will follow those. And as the rest of the UK diverges, it's going to follow the other path. So it, you're, you're really at this kind of, it's 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 very obvious point of, of, of um, a state saying that a part of it's not just now, but a kind of dynamic disengagement between Northern Ireland and Britain. And the logic of this is towards a united Ireland. Well, this is a very interesting point because we were talking about Sinn Féin earlier. Mary Lou Macdonald, the leader of Sinn Féin, uh, one of her uh, key promises was that, she, was, was that she wants to see a referendum uh, in by 2025, I think, about reunification. Obviously, this is attractive to young people. It's not a huge. There's not a huge clamour for this, as I understand it, across the broad populace, but that may grow as the uh, electorate, um, there's more young people are voting and uh, and who can see no logic in, in, the, in the situation you just described, which is so vastly illogical that it defies any, yeah. any rational explanation, really. Yeah, the real problem with this is that, you know, in a way you would think it was a kind of a dream for Irish nationalists and but uh, the real problem with it is it's not our story, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, the Irish story has always been, you know, I suppose a lot most national nationalist uh, mindsets of it. There's a there's a point in the future at which you know everything will be great. We'll all be unified. And mm. <laughs> this is coming, and then suddenly it's like it's not your story. It's a British story. It's an English story in particular. English nationalism is the thing that's actually driving all of this change. Yeah, and what, nobody's prepared for this. Nobody's been talking about it. You know, the, so. Yeah. 
uh, it's not so much uh, Northern Ireland leaving the Union as the as the Union leaving Northern Ireland, you know, uh, and Northern Ireland almost being abandoned. It's getting towards that point. If you look at all the surveys of people who voted to leave uh, the European Union, they also say that if if Northern Ireland leaving the UK is a price to be paid for Brexit, that's absolutely fine. Like seventy five percent of them say fine. Eighty three percent of them said if the if the peace process in Northern Ireland collapsed as a result of Brexit, that will be fine. Eighty three percent. I mean, it's astonishing. And I, I don't. I don't think that's because they're you know evil or sadistic. I or, just didn't know, live it. It's just we just don't care about it. It's it's yeah. just not mentally part of our polity. And so we're finding out that that's already happened in a way, and there's no way back from that, you know. So, and of course, Scotland is going to be a big factor of this. I mean, if Scotland votes for independence, there's no union to, to be unified to, you know. So, is, so is there you know, any? Do you see any similarities between Mary Lou Macdonald and Nicola Sturgeon? Are they? Uh, you know, they they're, they're both women, obviously. Yeah. And they both have a certain professionalism and charisma, charisma to them. Obviously, Nicola Sturgeon is somewhat more accomplished in terms of, you know, she's running yeah. the, the Scottish government. Uh, but uh, are there similarities there that you see? Um, the, 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 yes, there are similarities of, of personality in exactly the ways that you say. Um, uh, there's also, I think, a similarity in that they both have the same kind of dilemma, um, which is their their membership and their base is relatively militant. I mean, Nicholas Sturgeon's big problem at the moment is not Boris Johnson. It's it's the SNP, her own SNP members who mm. who want a new referendum now. You know, yeah. and she's quite rightly saying, "Well, hold on a minute. Let's just like let's we're in a process of very radical change. Mm. Um, let, let's see how this goes. Of course, we're going to do it, but you know, and trying to balance out the sort of demands of your own base with with the practical realities that well, that's the curse of governing in a way, isn't it? Yeah, so, it is. That, that, but also, it's it's this kind of when your nationalism always has this kind of messianic flavor to it, uh, and actually we're all in a in a position, you know, whether Scotland, Ireland, England, where you're thinking something's been set in motion with Brexit, and we've just no real idea where this is going. Uh, and the, it makes much more sense to say, well, actually, just let's cool this. So demanding a border poll in 2025 is something that Mary Lou Macdonald has to do for her own base, but it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, the, the Republic of Ireland is not in a position to absorb Northern Ireland economically, but also with Northern Ireland, you have to have reconciliation first before you can have unity. And there's, there's still a long way to go for reconciliation between Protestant and Catholic, between nationalist and unionist in, in Northern Ireland. It's a big uh, step forward, though, for Sinn Féin to be wanting to do it through the ballot box rather than through the, uh, down the barrel of a gun. I, I completely agree with you. You know, and, and I, I was saying earlier how much I, I, I sort of dislike their, their their ambivalent attitude to their own past. But it's a lot better to have an ambivalent attitude to your own past than to actually still be justifying that kind of. And yeah. people like me, I, I feel a certain kind of you know responsibility if you're a public figure while the troubles were on you know I, I, I and a lot of other people were saying all the time you know pursue your goals through political democratic means uh, you, you have you have no legitimacy to use violence and also you have no reason to use violence uh, it's counterproductive it doesn't work um, it's just making the divisions that you you claim to be wanting to overcome much worse pursue your goals by democratic means and you know when they take you up on the offer it's very difficult to, after 20 years to say, but you're still illegitimate. You're still a pariah, you know. And and so so I've been in a kind of strange position of arguing both that, you know, they have a long way to go and they really need to take more responsibility for the past, but also that this kind of position of saying, well, you know, they're, they're, they're nobody, you can't deal with them um, is, is just untenable. 
I think that's really beautifully put. It really does convey all of the complexity of, of and subtlety of mind one needs to have to actually make any sense of this and to have any kind of productive future that you can see. Let's finish on another imponderable, that being, um, and we've touched upon this a bit already, but that being um, in in the corona crisis, the absence of what we might call global leadership, particularly from the US. Um, and as you made the point, uh, Britain is now pursuing a policy which you know has some element of herd immunity of essentially almost allowing people to be infected uh, and hope to kind of quarantine the more vulnerable. Seems like a very risky strategy from a public health point of view, and it's certainly inconsistent. And as you say, particularly hard yeah. if you're if you're on the uh, the Irish island and you're thinking. Um, well, you know, there's there's no border between these two jurisdictions. I mean, how does this yeah. work? But it's also given the amount of inter interlinking, uh, interchange of people and so forth between economies. I mean, even Australia has to look at that and think, well, yeah. do we close our? Uh, do we just simply ban all people from the UK coming because they have this completely laissez-faire policy yeah. inconsistent with ours? Uh, and and of course, the US with all the faults that we've talked about before. It, it does seem like a terrible time for the US to have stepped back, to have spent so much energy on discrediting the WHO, uh, the United Nations, the yeah. multilateral forums, yeah. and also to have stepped back itself, you know, the new kind of nativism and isolationism of the US. Uh, Trump himself clearly incapable of, of doing anything here, of running, of understanding the, mm -hmm. the scale of the problem that the world faces yeah. and that his country faces. How do you see all that? I, I, I think that's absolutely right, you know, um, and of course it parallels, doesn't it, the other big existential crisis, which, which is, you know, it's climate change. So, so we, we, I think we've already been becoming aware of the fact that it's, it's almost like uh, different forces in the world have to sort of reconvene around some kind of common program in the absence of the US and we're, we're just not used to doing this, you mm. know. Um, I grew up in a world where there was it was bipolar world and it was the Soviet Union and the United States, you know, yeah. and and Russia is is not a responsible public or international player, you know, uh, to put it mildly, <laughs> and and the US has has been trashing you know, the whole idea of of global governance and, and yeah. uh, global cooperation. So you're left with, and I think it's very interesting for countries like Australia and Ireland, you know, which is wh wh where do we find some kind of way? I mean, for Ireland, it's easier in one way because you can align with the European Union. And that's part of where we are. I imagine for Australia, it's quite, it's quite difficult because I know historically, you know, Australia's been looking even more to the United States than to, than to Britain. Um, and, and that, that's, that, you know, is, is d deeply embedded as a way of thinking. And at the moment, it's just not working for any of us, you know, and um, and there's no time to waste. And then we have to think about, China, you know, I mean, China, much as most of us might deeply dislike its government and, and many of its human rights policies, uh, it, 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 it at the same time it, it is a country with which we have to align very, very profoundly on, on all, of, all of these questions of, of, of global infection because it's, it's obviously one of the places where it's coming from and, and, and the Chinese, whatever they've done, seems to be working. Now, it's very early to say that, but it, it does look like the kind of policies that have been pursued in China and then in South Korea and Singapore and Hong Kong may be, in fact, quite effective. They've been very drastic. 
Um, so we all have a lot to learn um, and have to learn a lot from from the Chinese because uh, you know they have a lot more information than the rest of us anyway. Um, so we, we we have to find ways of of doing this. One would hope that this might be a period in which the United Nations regains um, public trust, regains a sense of being a force in the world. I mean, it's been so marginalized by the great powers. Yeah. But if ever we needed it, we need it now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, finally, your last, your most recent book, I guess you've been around the country talking about that. Just tell us very quickly what that is. Well, I've, I've, I've just done a book. So I've, I've done two books on Brexit. I, I did one called Heroic Failure, The Brexit and the Politics of Pain, um, which is Biggest selling book about Brexit in in Britain, which is kind of uh, funny if you're Irish, you know, it's an interesting <laughs> thing. Uh, and I, I've just kind of put together. So I've been writing about Brexit for you know for, well, for forever, really, since it seems. <laughs> but I thought it might be worth just kind of putting together a kind of chronicle of uh, how it unfolds, you know, week by week, as it were. Or they have, you know, what what your thoughts are on it, oh, you know. So I can, because I've been writing about it all the time. So it's called Three Years in Hell. <laughs> um, which may look um, may look optimistic, actually. Maybe it's not three years. Maybe you know, you could I could bring out an annual new edition, you know, four years, five years. So yes. that's, that's just with Brexit. Never mind all the rest of it. Yes, it turns out that you don't know change until it really arrives. You yeah. just think you do. Yeah, 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 that's right. Look, Fintan O'Toole, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the Democracy Sausage podcast studio. Um, thanks for, for for spending some time talking to us, and uh, good luck with. Uh, getting back to Dublin and uh, I hope that you don't spend too much time in quarantine, self-imposed or otherwise. I may be on the podcast on a weekly basis when I'm marooned here or whatever. So that wouldn't be the worst thing. You're certainly always welcome. (laughs) Uh, That's all from this uh, special episode of Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye for now. 